Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us. I'm the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional, and those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, or retaining top talent. Today, we're going to visit a long overdue topic, employee burnout. What is it precisely? Why is it still a problem? Are there solutions? And if so... Uh, what are we doing to apply them and related topics? I'm pleased to have with me today Paula Davis, JD, and MAP, and author of her recently published book, Beating Burnout at Work, Why Teams Hold the Secret of Well-Being and Resilience. Uh, Paula is the founder and CEO of the Stress and Resilience Institute, a training and consulting firm that partners with organizations to help them reduce burnout build and build team resilience at the team leader and organizational level. Paula, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Jim. I'm so excited to be here with you. It's my pleasure. I think everybody knows what burnout is, but is there a precise definition? I define burnout as the manifestation of chronic workplace stress. And so a couple of words in that definition are important. So chronic, uh, meaning that most people don't just wake up one day and say, oh, I'm burned out. It's it's usually <laughs> that's that's been manifesting over a period of time. We can't say with precision what that amount of time is, but it's, it's typically not a I wake up one day and realize that I have it. Uh, and then workplace is also a very important part of that definition because um, one of the things, one of the ways we tend to go wrong in talking about burnout is that we tend to make it an individual focused uh, issue and we try to apply you know, self-care, self-help, stress management strategies, which are a great first start. Um, but aren't really necessary, uh, necessarily something that's going to be sticky in terms of preventing burnout. You know, and even the World Health Organization, when they updated their def- the definition of burnout, I think it was back in 2019, made, yeah. made a specific call out to say, when we're talking about burnout, we're talking about something that has a workplace root to it. I remember that. It was kind of a big deal, right? Yes. We've, know- we've known about burnout. It's been a major issue here in the States, and I'm sure elsewhere, uh, long before the pandemic. So it's still a problem. Obviously, I don't think the pandemic helped at all. Quite the opposite, really. Why is it so hard for employers? Why are they struggling so hard to adequately address this issue? So I think, kind of back to what I was alluding to before, I think we've been looking at it through the wrong lens. And so, so first of all, I think it's I think one of the silver linings of the pandemic in regard to this topic is that it is, I think, making it such that organizations and leaders and teams and and you know, HR folks are, are willing to now sort of have conversations around burnout to dig into it. I think so many people have just experienced at least the exhaustion component of burnout because of the pandemic, and, and a lot of people haven't been able to escape it. And so I think it has, it has really elevated the term and the concept for folks such that I think we're now willing to to take a look at it. And that's great. Um, but I think when, when it's been looked at before, it's been looked at again through almost exclusively an individual lens. The problem is, is that burnout is the individual manifestation of chronic workplace stress and, and cultural issues, right, of a workplace culture issue or problem. And so I think it's easy for, a lot easier for organizations to say, oh, okay, well, we'll, we'll prioritize the, you know, individual self-care, self-help, you know, boost all of those, all of that messaging. It's easy to do. It's, you know, less expensive, certainly, than having to take a look at 
wow, there's something going on within our culture that's actually causing it. How do we even remotely start to tackle that? Um, and then it becomes, you know, this thing that just it makes it harder for people to get inertia behind actually doing something about it. And so I think that's part of the reason why why it's been kind of languishing and around for a while is just that, you know, we've been we've been attacking it. We've been we've been addressing the problem in, in a little bit of the wrong way. Yeah, it's not unfamiliar of a tactic to try and put the solution onto the individual yeah. for systemic and endemic problems. That's something I get pretty exhausted about. Um, speaking of exhaustion, because it's <laughs> it's clearly that it's clear that burnout is a symptom of the root cause, which is work. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. And I think that a lot of employees are, are either becoming or are already very savvy to exactly what you just said. And I think that I think while a lot of people appreciate you know, those types of programs that are individually geared, I think there is a very huge appetite among, you know, employees generally to say, let's start tackling some of these other pieces. (laughs) Because like, if I have a micromanaging boss, you know, telling me to go do some yoga isn't going to fix that issue, it might help me manage my stress in the short term, so I can deal with something like that more appropriately. But it's not going to address the fact that um, I have a micromanaging boss. So the micromanagers really struggled in the beginning of the pandemic because everybody went first for remote workers. I mean, a, an unbelievable amount of ink has been spilled about, you know, how can we make sure that they're not just loafing around at home and, you know, they can't like look over your shoulder. Literally, there's a lot of employee monitoring software that's been applied over the last year. And uh, I'm hoping that at least a couple people had like a little bit of self-reflection at some point to say, Maybe I was, maybe I was a bit much, <laughs> but I doubt it. No. Yeah. And I mean, that's the, that's the interesting thing with, with the micromanager mentality is that, you know, you can use that carrot and stick approach and that sort of fear-based, you know, do it now because I, you know, said so kind of a, kind of an approach and people will get the work done and, you know, move on with life. But at the end of the day, you're sacrificing a whole lot of long-term motivation and well-being with folks when you take that approach. And I feel like, you know, I think if the pandemic has showed us anything for a lot of industries, we really can do good work almost anywhere. And I think that letting go of whether or not people are actually doing work at two in the afternoon or out taking a walk or doing their laundry or doing doing something else, um, I feel like you've missed it if if you're still worried if you're still worried about those things because um you know there's just there's just so many other ways that people want and need the flexibility to be able to do their work well and we're not all designed to to be productive at two in the afternoon or even within the confines of a you know a a period of time that we consider to be traditional work hours yeah i'm i'm one of those people i mean after lunch forget about it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the amount of effort it takes to refocus my energy is is huge because I need that energy for digesting. See, um, yes. <laughs> I remember reading about it because like, what is happening? But no, that's everybody. That's everybody, and that's the thing is that a lot of these problems are everybody. Everyone experiences them. But you know, you talked about the importance of workplace culture, and I think that overall in the states, there's a culture of don't complain. We don't want to hear it. It's not useful to us just sort of, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? And get back to work. I think it's getting a little better. 
I haven't heard anyone tell me to get back to work in a while. So that's been nice. Yes. But it's not like I've never heard that, you know, and when individuals are suppressed from their ability to communicate with the very common and typical problems they're having, you know, they feel alone in it and they're not talk to any person and they're going to recognize when that happened to them, that they've had similar issues. And that can add, I think I can add a lot of value to your ability to sort of navigate through those difficult times, just knowing you're not on your own, right? Oh, it's huge. And I, you know, this is, it's interesting. This has been one of a a very consistent theme I've been talking about um, with teams and organizations is the power of stories. And I put a little bit about that in the book and wish I probably would have boosted that a little bit, but uh, you know, I don't think that, well, I know that I, as an individual would not be the person that I am today, nor would my business really look the way that it looks, I think, without the power of stories. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, when I finished my law practice, because I burned out, um, you know, and I was segueing into what became the second part of my career, I didn't talk about burnout at all. So it's sort of weird. Now I've got this this stage and this platform to be talking about an issue that really I was trying to hide and and run from for a period of time, because I I didn't really understand what had happened to me, um, nor could I figure out how to, I I wasn't able to figure out really how to deal with it. And um, it took me a while to do that. And um, for me, it was my work with the Army drill sergeants and soldiers. Um, I spent about three and a half years after I finished my master's degree doing that work and hearing their stories, just honestly, I mean, completely unrelated to burnout, but just hearing their stories of struggle and stress and and how they managed to deal through obstacles really inspired me. And I thought, oh, man, wow, if they're dealing with that and they can overcome you know, the level of challenge that they're facing, might I maybe take a look at how I can talk about my issue and my struggle and things like that as well? And so I write a lot and very openly about my burnout story. I'm very open about it. I talk about a lot of other issues I'm experiencing in my life in certain ways, and I never would have done that before. And so it's one of the things that I encourage leaders and people and teams to do. And it's hard because especially as leaders, our wiring is, you, you know, you got to have all the answers and you have to have them all the time. And we've got to look put together because I have to be, you know, that type of presence for my team. And yeah, I mean, the you do, you can't come to work every day, um, you know, or show up every day, not knowing answers to questions and things like that. But we're in new territory here. And if you're a leader who's trying to tell your team that you've got it all figured out in this environment, uh, you know, I think you're going to pay pay a price in terms of trust and cohesion on your team going forward. And so now is a great opportunity to to be modeling, you know, how did you deal with the pandemic? What were some of the ways that maybe you struggled and how'd you overcome it? And what were some silver linings and, you know, and really talking about those messages so that other people in the organization and on your team feel comfortable to do the same thing. Cause that's how we're going to, I think, start to break down some of the, the barriers just around our hesitancy to talk about stress and some of these topics. It has been nice to see at least an entry level interest given by so many organizations into the topic of stress. We have and anxiety and and depression and mental health concerns because um, they're they're sort of on a spectrum. We, I of course, have access to the metrics of my articles, our articles, and our publications and. Historically, those articles did not do well. Mm. They did okay. Interesting. But not, and lately it's through the roof. Yeah. I mean, it's not, not a ton has changed in the content, 
you know, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's adjusted for remote, you know, for pandemic specific things. But yeah, which indicates to me that the right people are looking into it. That is the HR people. You know, um, it's not just it's not just a leader talking about it at a, at a top level meeting, though that's important, I think. And it's not just employees complaining and making fun of everybody, um, which is, I think, what we do when we get stressed out yes. and hurt out. Um, I mean, you got to do that a little bit, right? (laughs) You got to vent. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think that there's something here. I think something's happening and people are aware of how important this is and that we are people in fact, that are, are working at all these organizations and not just, you know, it's just, I don't know. It's just been some magic thing that's happened. I, I think I understand why, but forcing people to all be in the same boat for once, you know, cause other, the most common sources of stress, you know, financial hardship, childcare, family issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of that was disproportionately affecting the lower half of the employee spectrum. Not saying that CEOs don't deal with these problems, but it's really not to the same extent and not in aggregate. So now when you have anybody can get affected by the pandemic, um, anybody can be at home with their children all of a sudden during the workday. It doesn't matter who you are. That was really uh, valuable, and I hope that those lessons are carried forward into the future. I agree, and I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why so many companies are having a, a renewed or initial interest now in this topic and in mental health generally, because we've all lived it. We've lived through this great psychological experiment, and I say great in quotes, and I don't, I don't mean that to come across as like it was great, because right. it obviously wasn't, but we've lived through this huge psychological experiment. And it's been hard, I think, for anybody to escape at least some sort of feeling or aspect around it. And and HR folks, um, you know, I've just given a couple of presentations to chief HR officers at different roundtables, and they come with their data talking about, you know, the, the, you know, employees who are using, you know, Calm or Headspace or EAP apps or programs or, um, you know, productivity metrics and things like that, you know, the productivity they can tell is down and they know that the the use of some of these other tools is through the roof. And so they're literally seeing people just be able to like putting their hands up saying help, like I need something, um, you know, give me some type of resource here because, you know, I'm trying to get my arms around um, what I'm feeling. And this is not exactly an easy thing. You know, it, for a lot of people, I think is the first time that maybe they've experienced a sense of prolonged anxiety or loneliness or, stress or languishing or frustration or overwhelm or whatever, whatever word we give to it. So languishing. I like that one. Yes. I think I, I languish. That's what I do. (laughs) Um, It's about building up the energy to do the things you absolutely have to do so that when you don't have to do those things, you can languish. <laughs> yes, you can. You can. It almost sounds relaxing, right? <laughs> right. Until it, yeah, until until you really understand that that it's a it's a state sort of somewhere between thriving and burnout. So So you mentioned yoga earlier. One of my questions was going to be sort of a flippant joke about why don't we all just do yoga? Um, so I'm going to ask that anyway. Come on. Why don't we just, you know, get to hit the mats? We can solve this, right? It, well, so it's interesting that you bring that up because I wrote a Forbes article uh, on my Forbes blog called um, Why You Can't Yoga Your Way Out of Burnout. And so, <laughs> so I guess I've been a little flip about this as well. But it's, it's really my point of saying that uh, we have to start either moving away from just purely giving people individual strategies 
um, into more of the systemic conversation. And we have to take the conversation about burnout from just a surface level where we're talking about it as, and even narrowing it um, incorrectly to just a, a something that is about exhaustion, because it's much more complex than that. And there's much many more dimensions than just exhaustion, though that's the one that people tend to identify. And so what happens then is we hear, oh, an individual isn't experiencing an issue, they're exhausted. Let's tell them to sleep more, exercise more, or do yoga or meditate. And those things are all really important baseline self-care, self-help, stress management strategies that we don't want to discourage people from using or get away from. But when we're talking about burnout, we have to start having a deeper conversation into if, if we're seeing it within our organization, what's causing it? Like, what are the actual causes that are that are pushing people to, to feel these, these effects and these outcomes? And when you... When you look at the causes, it's things like workload. I don't think I've worked with a team or an organization that doesn't cite workload as a huge driver of stress and potentially burnout. It's lack of recognition. So I don't feel like my job title matches the level of what I'm doing, or I don't, I'm don't. i not thanked at all, or I feel like I'm doing good work and nobody's recognizing it. Um, I don't feel like there's a sense of leader or team support, so there's that lack of cohesion. Um, it's not having enough autonomy or flexibility, as we just talked about. Um, and it's it's those types of issues that the research tells us very clearly are what are the big causes of burnout. So when you look at that and you say, just tell someone to yoga their way out of like a heavy workload or, you know, feeling like they're doing work at the, a lower level than what they're actually doing at, it's a misapplied strategy to an actual cause, to deal with the actual root causes of, of burnout. So, so those types of things, again, aren't bad or wrong. There's, we're just picking the wrong sort of strategy to, to use to, to really advance the burnout prevention conversation. You mentioned that burnout's much more complex than exhaustion. It doesn't surprise me that exhaustion is what people are focusing on because it's the antithesis to uh, productivity, right? Yes. The great productivity of uh, of corporate America. We must go on. Um, can we maybe talk a little bit about those complexities? What else is involved in someone that's burned out? Yeah. So, so first of all, it's chronic physical and emotional exhaustion. So it is more often than not, you're experiencing that sense of, of just lost energy. So that's a piece of it. But then what another big piece is chronic cynicism. So people start to annoy you. They just start to bug you. It's like, oh, do you have to call me again about this? Can't you figure it out for yourself? You're not going to listen to me anyway. So why are we having this conversation? Um, I, I call it the internal eye rolling a lot. So, you know, outwardly, we try desperately to maintain a facade of, yes, we're, you know, I, I'm here with you. But inside, you know, we're holding back a lot of like, oh, just, you know, that sort of, that sort of, you know, kind of I know it well. Of, yeah, what's going on. And then what ends up happening is those two things, the chronic cynicism and exhaustion, tend to conspire to lead to what the research calls inefficacy. So that's our sense of lost impact, our disengagement. Now, you know what, you know, I used to love working with my clients and now, you know what, I'm just kind of like I'm kind of holding you at bay a little bit. And um, I'm not as plugged into, uh, you know, the work environment as I was. Uh, I start to think, why bother? Who cares a lot more than I did? I'm starting to wonder, is this a team that I'm supposed to be on? Is this an organization I should be in? Should I be looking down the street at another type of organization? Is this the career that I want to have? And so it's, it kicks open the door to lots of those other sort of end result type of questions. And so um, so burnout is all of, of that experience. 
Yeah, that sounds pretty familiar. Um, you know, and it's part of you wonders, you know, okay, isn't that just evolution of yourself? Like you were at an organization, you had your fun, it got to be too much. And now it's time to move on to another one where it'll presumably be better. I could see how people would identify it in that way. Is that an issue that that you run into? So I would say that I think that, you know, if you feel like you started at an organization and you're still, there's a difference between feel, feeling engaged and that you like your work and that you're doing good work, but that you're not really evolving as a professional. Like I've gotten to the highest level that I'm going to get in my career. I've gotten to the highest place that I can get on this team. And there's really no other promotion that I can get. You know, I think about my work in the legal profession where if you're if you're either a lawyer or you're not a lawyer, so right away there's a big difference there. And if you're a lawyer, you're either an associate or a partner. There's you're not you're not going to elevate beyond either of those two categories, and so that can be frustrating sometimes for people um, in the context of a you know a, a law firm environment. But um, so I think that there's that, but it but there's also then is is the organization or is the culture just not giving you what you need, and so. You know, we talked about those critical uh, drivers, those demands that tend to sprout burnout. But, you know, on the opposite end, uh, we know very clearly from the research, we need a big dose of autonomy, belonging and what the research calls competence. So we need to know that we're continuing to develop and grow as professionals. Psychologically, we hate that feeling of stagnation and like I'm treading water and I don't think anyone, you know, I'm, I don't have the tools to kind of get to the next level or nobody's helping me kind of advance in that way. So you have to look at it from both sides of the equation. And so I see it's certainly both of those things happening. I think sometimes, you know, organizations forget about how how much people really do need stretch assignments and keep pushing me. And I don't I don't want to keep, you know, just doing the same five things over and over again. I'd like to expand my horizons a little bit. And so so some of it is, is is folks just feeling like maybe they've gotten to a certain level and that's all that there is and maybe it's time to move on. But other times I think there's more of an organizational component to it, um, you know, that could potentially be modified. Let's dive into that because, you know, as we mentioned, the the looking at an individual approach puts the responsibility on on the individual. But you know, it sounds like the underlying causes of these things are rooted in the way that organizations operate, right? So how does an organization diagnose itself for this issue? And then can it correct itself? Yeah, so this is where my team's sort of thesis or model or idea comes in, because I think for an organization to look at this as a whole, it becomes a pretty monumental challenge and it can become somewhat overwhelming to think about where do we start with with all of this because we're seeing it, but we don't know and how do we measure it and where do we even begin to start the conversation and how do we make it a priority? And I mean, there's a whole host of questions. And so for me, an easier entry point is within the team structure and within team dynamics. I think of teams as little mini systems within the big organizational system. And, and for me, it becomes also nice because within the context of a team, I can talk to individual contributors. So still keeping with some of those individual type strategies, but also I can talk to leaders and say, look, here's, here's some behaviors that you need to either change or add or recognize are really critical to the burnout prevention conversation. And here's how we can talk about fortifying the team collectively to be able to create, you know, a positive culture or whatever you label as the antithesis of burnout. So 
it's it's to me it's it's a mini system within the big system it just feels like an easier task to work that way than to diagnose the whole thing and so when i work with teams i um, i'm oftentimes you know will formally assess either rates of burnout or oftentimes more so those six those those causes that i talked about there's a there's a tool that you can actually drill down and and i can help teams say yeah, it's workload and, you know, lack of team cohesion that are the two big forces that are, are driving this issue for you. Now let's have a conversation about those two things. And not that everything else falls by the wayside, but at least we can start to prioritize what we know are the big drivers of this and, and have conversations around what that looks like and how we can how we can start to figure that out. So for me, that that has been the easier ap- approach. So taking it in sort of those smaller pieces. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that's smart because then you'll be able to drill down to sort of manageable bits, right? Instead of, I mean, especially since the team leaders are going to have the detailed information about what's going on the day to day in a way that a CEO may not, it won't, they won't have it. Right. It's literally their job not to. <laughs> right. They trust the man. They trust the managers to put that stuff together. Right. It's it's interesting to me that. So often when we talk about what's going wrong at organizations, it comes down to those things. It comes down to a lack of trust or mm-hmm. uh, respect in an organization. What a big surprise that that leads to a bunch of negative consequences. And it comes down to, you know, people feeling, feeling trapped or stagnant at work. You know, because people, if they're feeling respected and trusted, maybe they'll accept a little bit of monotony you know, but you add those things together because let's face it, some jobs are going to be monotonous. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, just by the very definition, you're not, you, maybe you're not going to be able to get that novelty out of your work, but at, at least if people respect you um, and you're getting, you know, positive feedback from the people that are, are in your leadership stream, it can make it seem very manageable. It's just, you know, it's interesting to me that it's like, it always comes back to, these exact core things that are missing. And I've looked at people have talked with different professionals have talked about all these different kinds of ways that it hurts your organization. Mm-hmm. You know, don't we, I mean, it's, it's really frustrating actually from my perspective to mm-hmm. keep saying it. Why, why is it so hard for people to understand that you got to respect, respect your employees? I don't know. I mean, it's a very intuitive thing for me. And I don't I, I, I just profoundly don't understand that either. And I think that, you know, sometimes we get so lost in um, the bottom line and the metrics and are we making our numbers and, you know, how many hours are we working? And we're so focused on those types of things that I think we forget about the humanness that's involved yeah. with work. And that um, and that's another theme that I've been hearing a lot more in my conversations as well. I mean, people are saying like, hey, if we're going to go back to work and we're going to do this thing all over again, recognize that I'm a whole person coming back to work and that I have hobbies and I have a family and I have other interests and I, I love work and this is great and I'll give my all for you. But I have other things about me that are important and that you need to acknowledge as well. And I'm not, I don't want to just grind it out hour after hour and day after day without that being taken into consideration. And so what you're talking about too, and it's why I included it as the foundational element of my team's model is really a combination of what I call psychological safety and psychological needs. So psychological safety is the trust. How do you develop trust at the team level? 
And I was surprised when I started to drill into the research that we're talking about just like probably what you learned in kindergarten sometimes, like behaviors like, hey, someone's joined a Zoom call, say hi to them, you know, look somebody in the (laughs) eye, smile, don't be multitasking and on your phone while somebody's talking because you're conveying a message to them that they really don't matter. And I know that's not what you intend, but psychologically, our brains are constantly looking for cues that we're like in a team that matters to us and that people care about us and support us and, and want what's good for us. And when you're sending those other messages that you're sent, you're telling people, no, you don't matter. And in its, um, again, intuitive. So I'll tell, I'll unpack these behaviors for folks and they're, and they're like, wow, this seems kind of, kind of basic. And I said, yeah, it's not rocket science. It's just that we're not, you're not doing it. It's not being operationalized. And so it's those really small five to 10 minute moments of micro interaction that build a sense of trust that, that add up over time. And that was a big aha for me in researching the book too. So it's that it's the trust piece. And then the psychological needs are what I mentioned is the autonomy, belongingness, the belonging and, and competence. And I have a kind of a cute story I put in the book about that. I was coaching somebody and we were talking about this and she was kind of a middle manager. And she said, she said, oh, if I had even 25% of that, I would totally leave my boyfriend. And I laughed and I said, what are you talking about? And she said, I'm so worried in my position that I'm going to miss an email like a last minute fire, or I'm going to miss an email from my boss or somebody else or a business client that I have a hard time feeling comfortable going out on date night or, or hanging out and spending that time away from work with my boyfriend. And if I felt like I was cared about, if I felt like somebody was like saying, go be, have some flexibility, go do your job how you see it. She's like, I would be so engaged that I would be, I would be okay saying to my boyfriend hey, we're, we're not going to be able to do date night tonight because I'm going to be focused on this project for some extra hours and we can, you know, we can do our date night tomorrow or another time. And so it's really that that combination of things that just activates for people um, a lot of really powerful glue and engagement and stickiness. And I, I, I never know exactly the word to, to describe it as, but it's um, the opposite of the carrot and stick approach, essentially. And that's when you when you get people going in that direction. That's when you have people who will, you know, skip date night and work until two in the morning. And, um, you know, they won't just do it because they have to. They'll do it because they see that, that there's some sort of benefit for them and that they're bought into what's being created. Have you ever watched uh, Office Space? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, I often draw inspiration from Office Space. I was loving that movie before I started working in a in an office job, and then now I watch it every year. Just sort of a an homage. My favorite thing is, you know, he's he's meeting sitting down with these consultants, the Bobs, mm-hmm. and and he's talking about it's just a matter of motivation. You know, if I work if I work extra hard, and you know, in a tech ships an extra unit, I don't see a dime. And so why? And and he yeah. has that famous line where he's like. That'll make someone just work hard enough not to get fired, right? Exactly. And it's that's in there. If you're not getting something out, because this is a, this is a business arrangement, you know, I'm not giving you my time for free, mm-hmm. and I'm not just doing it for the money. Mm-hmm. It's a trade of services. Mm-hmm. You give me this stuff, I give you that stuff. There should always be a way for you to, when you work harder, see that value, even if it's not monetary. And I think that's missed missed an awful lot 
in organizations. It's just, you know, like my wife's in sales. She has a very clear set of metrics for exactly how she's doing. Mm -hmm. And she knows that if she works hard and works extra, she makes more money. So she'll, she'll pull out her laptop and she'll work till 10 o'clock at night, scrubbing leads or doing whatever she's going to do. I feel for your, that lady in your story. Mm-hmm. What a way to live, mm-hmm. you know, waiting at 10 o'clock at night for chaos. It's every, it's every lawyer who, who I work with, right? They're always waiting for the <laughs> shoe to drop. It's the unpredictability of, you know, what's the next thing that's going to happen. And it's not just lawyers. I mean, I think physicians probably experience that, nurses, other folks in healthcare, yeah. anyone who has that level of unpredictability and responsibility in their jobs. But yeah, it's horrible. It's one of the things that I hated the most about practicing. Yeah, you're never off. No. Um, even when you are. I used to work in restaurants and I'd be on call and it's the same thing. For one thing, you you couldn't you just couldn't relax because you had to be ready. You couldn't have a drink because you'd mm-hmm. maybe you'd have to hop in your car. You know, that's just it's hard. It's really hard. I know it's just one tiny part of what we're talking about here, but the mentality behind that, like in some cases, yeah, like you're saying, like EMTs or something, like yeah, that's how it's going to be. But does it have to be that way? in the many of organizations where it, where it is that way? No, no. And in some organizations where that's present, what I'm trying to do, um, you know, and I, I don't mean to come keep coming back to, you know, the context of the legal profession, but it's it's just one where I tend to see it quite a bit happening. Um, you know, I'm doing a, um, starting on the front end of a project with a, a client of mine, and we're actually going to be, so which is a law firm, we're actually going to be working with one of their clients to figure out how can we together team in such a way so that people feel like, you know, at 11 o'clock on a Saturday, they can enjoy their cousin's wedding without having to constantly be in the corner, <laughs> like texting somebody or like worried that that they're going to miss an email that they've got to respond to at three in the morning. Because so many people say, you know, I don't mind doing hard things at my job. I just don't want to do them at three in the morning or two in the morning or, or think I'm going into a weekend where I, ha- I can take a measure of downtime with my family. And then the rug gets pulled out from under me and we can tolerate that every now and again. But when it's constant, it is just such a source of stress. And so so I think that's one, you know, I'm excited to see what comes of that project and, and how I can, you know, replicate that in other organizations, you know, coming together with, you know, within the systems that that conspire to, you know, cause these effects and what what can we do about it. But one of the things I wanted to mention, you know, kind of what you're getting at was another big job demand that I didn't mention before that's a cause, which is values disconnect, a values disconnect. So like if I show up to work and I I want things out of my work, I want to grow as a professional in a certain way and I want to learn specific things and I want a certain type of environment, does my work give me that? And when it matches, I mean, it's, it's glue to the nth degree is what I think about it. And when it doesn't match, it's horrible. When, I, when I'm expecting so many things or want so many things from my work and I'm not getting that in my environment, then I start to, it's that inefficacy piece starts to roll in that why bother? Who cares? And what am I doing here? And is this the right team or is this the right organization? And um, yeah, it's, it's a big miss, big miss. It's rough for everybody too. I mean, the unengaged, the disengagement, um, which I think is what a lot of this rests under that umbrella of disengagement rates were like 80% before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. I mean, which is just insane to me that you've got, you know, four out of your five employees are basically just waiting for the day to end mm-hmm. so they can forget about you for a little while, you know, and uh, 
first of all, that should be okay that you could just forget about your job when you're done with your job. So if your organization's organized correctly, that could be a good thing, you know? Yeah. Good job, everybody. We did it. Let's close shop. Tomorrow we'll hit it again. Yep. Um, It's just, and then you have the actively disengaged people, which doesn't get talked about as much as it should because those people are extremely destructive. (laughs) They're showing up to make sure you have a bad day. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they want to sow chaos and destruction. And it's so easy to blame them. It's like, ah, that person's just a terrible person. But they probably weren't always. You know, it takes it takes getting like not just being inadequately rewarded or getting irked on the weekends. It's when something happens that's sort of at a tragic level mm-hmm. where, you know, in a sense of a, a Greek tragedy where it's just a little bit extra, an extra jab of the knife and you know the organization cut their pay when they were at their lowest point mm-hmm. or threatened to fire them and then didn't or you know, whatever it is and that person just makes a little i'm gonna wreck this joint mm-hmm. from the inside out mm-hmm. man you want to avoid that i mean if i was an employer i would be doing everything that i could to avoid that because they're also sneaky oh yeah they you know they want to do as much damage as they possibly can I would rather have 10 disengaged employees than one actively disengaged employee. Yeah. I find it to be a fascinating topic. No, it is. I did, and there's another nuance to the whole engagement conversation. And I stumbled across a really interesting study um, when I was researching the book. And it, it showed that high burnout and high engagement can travel together. So the study looked at a group of, of folks across a lot of different organizations, and they found that they classified them in different ways. And about eight, it was 18.8% of the people who they looked at fell into this highly engaged, highly burned out category. And what was interesting, and it was also the group with the highest turnover intention, which is also probably not what you'd think, because you'd think that it was the group that was like me at the end of my law practice. I'm so burned out. Get me out of here that would have the highest level of turnover intention because it's like, I'm done. We're, you know, we're already sort of reaching right. the door. And it really wasn't. It was the group that was this highly engaged, highly burned out because when you think about it, they're still highly, there's an aspect of their work that is resonating with them. They're just not getting what they need within the confines of the organization. And in fact, it's the opposite. And so they're like, you know what? I got some pep in my step a little bit left. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still, you know, work matters to me. And this is, you know, on some level, I like what I do. I just don't know that I like that I, what I do here. And, you know, when they drilled down into a little into it a little bit more, they realized that it was um, the, the type of jobs that these folks had were oftentimes classified as um, high demand, low resource type jobs, meaning that they had a lot of those demands driving, you know, that drive that drove burnout, but they had very few of the resources that we know can mitigate burnout. They were kind of stuck in that. And so it's been interesting. So there was, so that study was interesting, but I've seen it now in other studies, um, you know, and, and even with my coaching clients, I, I had a coaching client who said, you know, I printed out that slide that you have showing all the demands and resources. And I literally walked into my boss's office and I showed it to her and I said, look, here's why I feel the way that I feel. Um, and, and, you know, he, someone who still very much wants to do good work and is very engaged, but also very much burned out as well. So, so I just think that's an interesting nuance that, um, that organizations aren't appreciating because I think they do their engagement surveys and think like, Oh, if a team is, you know, in the top level of an engagement survey, they must be fine. How can there be burnout? 
present. And I've seen that in my work with teams as well, where I've seen, you know, rates of burnout, but the team itself is, you know, in the top tier for engagement scores for the organization as a whole. So um, something for HR folks, I think, to really pay attention to. Yeah, it's very interesting. It it makes you think about what is what I fundamentally believe should be the first first and foremost thought in any employer's mind, and especially in HR, which is that the overwhelming majority of your employees are good people that want to work really hard. Yes. I mean, they just, they do. Yes, there's going to be the crappy people. Don't let them ruin that for you. Right. Don't let that one jerk make you think that the 99 other people are jerks too, because they're not. Most people want to work hard. They want to get value out of their job and they want to apply themselves. We're designed to. It's a human thing. Right. It's one of the few congruencies between our human nature and work because so much of it isn't congruent. Right. And yet it's so hard, apparently very difficult to to trade upon and to to nourish. Well, it's interesting. My parents owned a business for 15 years. And so a lot of my lessons around, you know, organizational culture and things like that really were formed very early because I started working in my parents' business. On some level, you know, I think at the age of eight or nine, you know, just doing some basic level tasks and helping out and things like that. And, um, you know, I really saw how they and especially my dad treated people. And this was a plastic injection molding company. So he, you know, he wasn't running, you know, a, a professional services firm. I mean, this is a very different kind of kind of business and how loyal people were to the organization and to him. And so the way that I always explain it when people ask me about it is um, the way that I would phrase it is when you put when you put people ahead of money, you make more money. And we're so focused yeah. on just the money equation. And it's I feel like we've got it wrong. And it's like when you when you nurture the environment that will allow people to do the best work they can and, and have some of these other ingredients that we've talked about then they're bought in and now they're giving you that extra mile and the the payoff is you know bottom line type type stuff in addition to they feel a sense of motivation and well-being and they feel better about the world and less burnout and things like that so we've just got i think we're just so backwards in terms of how we think about some of these things we really are i it's a very direct a direct route to say we need to make more money so focus on the money Mm -hmm. and then Everything else is supposed to fall in line somehow, but it just doesn't. Uh, it's something we talk. I talk about a lot because it really, in every single way, being a good person to your employees, encouraging diversity and diversity of thought and trust and respect really does bring you more. It may be not like right away, and I think that might be the problem. So many organizations are organized around quarterly earning reports. Um, yes. Yes. So your ROI has to be demonstrated right now. Yes, which is which is so it's so it's so um, odd to me because so I'll tell you I just finished an interview series uh, with a group of lawyers who have military experience. So I've been trying to sort of mesh a lot of my worlds in terms of you know leadership, my interest in leadership, and my background as a lawyer and the work that I've done with the military and continue to do into sort of one big ball. And so I. I found four amazing um, legal professionals who had military experience and I interviewed them and I asked all of them about their leadership philosophy and, and, you know, who are the leaders that you admired most and what were the traits that they exhibited? And every single one of them said things like they were authentic, they were real, they 
um, had a huge sense of humility. I could trust them. Um, you know, they were the first person to say, I don't know, or I'm not ready for the mission tomorrow. I got to stay late um, and I'll do it instead of you, lower ranking soldier, doing it instead. And if I asked you or if I asked anybody who was listening, what are some of the traits that you most admire in the leaders who you really respect or have respected over the course of your career? I don't think anyone would say the leader who you know made their earnings and, and had great ROI. It's always people who cared about me, people who helped me, people who were authentic. So it's again, it's weren't we even know what makes for the type of environment we want, yet we go in the opposite direction again. So and it's obviously I get it. I mean, we're running businesses, I'm running a business and you can't ignore the bottom line, but you your ratio can't be 80% metrics and bottom line to 20% people. It's got to at least start to me at a 50-50 and likely swing more toward the people side than the metric side, in my opinion. Here, here. I'm a big fan of that. One of the soldiers told me that exactly, too. So I'm quoting, I'm quoting him. I agree with him. So he's a smart man. I'm thinking of back, I'm thinking back to, you know, my supervisors that I've had. And yeah, the authentic ones, that's where they're the ones that leave an impact. Yes. And don't we want to be that? I mean, I, I yeah. like why why are we why are we manufacturing an environment that creates the opposite? Quite honestly, just one of many important questions about why things are the way they are. <laughs> um, unfortunately, that's about all the time that we have now. But thank you so much for for hopping on the show and talking with me today. Oh, you're so welcome, Jim. Thanks. I liked this conversation. This is great. Me too, and it's my pleasure. Um, listeners, we're always interested in suggestions you might have for who we should cover next. Please do feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HRWorks Podcast. Or if you just want to let me know how things are going. Thank you for listening. This is Jim Davis with HRWorks.